My name is Nathan. Happy to be here. Happy to see you. Hey, welcome back. Good to see some of you. Uh, good to see all of you. Good, especially good to see some of you I haven't seen for a bit. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll hand one to you. I'm going to preach out of a, an ancient Jewish book called Deuteronomy. If you start at the very beginning of the book, that's right, it's a, it's a favorite. If you start at the very, very beginning, it's like the fourth book in. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then I think it's Deuteronomy, and I'll be in chapter 6, so you can look for the big number 6, and I'll be in verse 4. Um, I uh, had knee surgery a couple weeks ago. I apologize for being seated. Um, somebody told me that they heard that Jesus taught seated, and at first I felt good about that, and then I realized, well, I'm, I'm not Jesus, and it kind of feels like I ought to be standing up <laughs> to deliver the gospel, and uh, so last week, for the first time in my life, I preached seated, and it was kind of lame, but I hope it came across okay. Um, so that's, what, that's why I'm here like this. Thanks for your graciousness. Um, this morning, thanks, thank you, appreciate the support. Um, I'm on a crash course of dependence uh, and some of you have really stepped up, and I just really appreciate it, especially my kids and my wife. Um, great. So this morning, 9 o'clock, we finished the eighth week of a program called OnRamp, a family formation uh, class that several of you have participated in. Rick Ashey wrote, and I appreciate his strong support for that. And in, in, um, in what's the word, like going with that, is this eight-week series that, we've, that we're finishing up today called The Work of the Church. We've been asking, why do we do what we do when we gather here for worship? So here's the plan this morning. Let me lay it out for you in case you'd like to follow along from the start here in terms of where we're going. I'm going to begin with a really brief explanation of worship, as though you've never heard about what worship is before. And then um, I'm going to invite you to embrace a whole new way of organizing your typical day. A whole new way of kind of approaching your typical life. I'm just going to invite you to embrace that. Then we'll discuss this prayer from Deuteronomy, which is this ancient prayer that is still prayed by Jews today because it's that good. And then finally, I'm going to share four simple ways that you can make your home or your daily schedule an effective context for spiritual growth, for formation and for change. All right? Oh, and then I'm going to say something about tables at the very end. Okay, so here's a brief explanation of worship. Hope you got some notes. If not, raise your hand and we'll hand one to you. Here's a brief explanation of Christian worship. Worship is the experience that includes symbols and words and rituals. Symbols and words and rituals. And each of these, whether it's a symbol or a word or a ritual, communicate a true story. In other words, in Christian worship, we tell a story. And the story is about a relationship. And it's a very personal relationship. It's the relationship that people have with God. And that relationship between people and God is rooted not in our own fascination, ideas, longings necessarily, but it's rooted in historical events. So when we tell this story and when we engage in this story and when we believe this story, the truth of the story is what fuels our life. It's what motivates us. It's what gives us perspective. And the big story, the meta-narrative, can become for us a guide and a motivator for our individual stories, our personal stories, our individual lives. Now, because Christian, the Christian story is rooted in historic events, Christian worship is not haphazardly organized. It is not randomly put together. 
it should not be just sort of thrown together like some sort of potpourri, right? Biblical worship is rooted in these events which over thousands of years have defined and articulated and motivated the relationship between God and people. So there's thousands of these experiences, thousands of these events that have taken place in the history of Christianity, all the way back into our Jewish roots. Let me just outline two, I would argue these are the two most important historic events on which Christian worship is based. Major event in the Old Testament is the Exodus. The major event, the central story or event in the Old Testament is Exodus, which is the story of the mass exit of a million slaves from the major superpower of the world at the time, which was a country called Egypt, still around. The Hebrew people, a million of them, were in slavery there for 400 years. And then in one day, they were freed to go. And then delivered miraculously through a huge body of water known as the Red Sea. This one event becomes the central story that is told by the Jewish people in their worship gatherings for thousands of years. They are remembering the Exodus. They are retelling the Exodus. The Passover meal, which you've probably heard of, is the recounting of the story of the Exodus. And they're celebrating and thanking God for the Exodus still to this day. Because it is the central major event of the Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. So you can summarize worship gatherings in the Old Testament as remembering and embracing and celebrating the Exodus. This is the event which more than any other event in the, in the Old Testament tells the story of the relationship between God and people. Right? In the New Testament, the major event is the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We, we could refer to that whole Jesus being betrayed, tortured, killed on the Roman cross, and then rising three days later as the Christ event. So Jesus of Nazareth claims to bring the kingdom of God and then is betrayed, is killed on a Roman cross, and then rises um, to life again. You can summarize New Testament preaching. There are seven sermons in the book of Acts. You can summarize those sermons, and you can summarize New Testament worship as remembering, embracing, and celebrating the Christ event. This is the story that they have told and continue to tell as a part of Christian worship. More than any other historic event in the last 2,000 years, Christian worship is informed by the Christ event. And this is the story. Why do we focus on this so much? Because it tells us the story of the relationship between God and people. Right? So everything Christians do in worship gatherings should tell this story. The story of God freeing people from bondage and slavery, like Exodus. The story of God overcoming betrayal and injustice and death with life and with love and with forgiveness, which is the story of Christ. Everything, our symbols need to tell this story. The words we speak need to tell this story. The songs we sing need to tell this story. The rituals in which we participate need to tell this story. For instance, here's just a couple examples. The fact that we're gathering here on a Sunday morning and not a Saturday morning tells that story. Because Jesus, the Sunday or Saturday is the Sabbath according to the Bible, according to the Old Testament. That's the seventh day, the day of rest. Christians change their day of worship to Sunday 
because of the resurrection. It happens on a Sunday. It is so paradigm-altering that it changes the day of worship according to our story. Um, the fact that we sing when we worship, we preach when we worship, we share communion when we worship, we send people out with a benediction or a blessing, all of those things tell the same story. The fact that Christmas is a big deal to Christians, the fact that Easter is a big deal to Christians, is because it tells the story. It tells the story of God coming to earth as a human named Jesus to live and die in one of us and to reconcile us back to God and the right relationship that we're to have with him. So worship recreates, here's a quote from um, Robert Weber, an author that I I really appreciate when it comes to philosophy of worship. Worship, he says, recreates and thus represents the historical event. In this way, worship proclaims the meaning of the original event and confronts worshipers with the claim of God over their lives. In other words, why are we telling this story and maybe more importantly, why are we retelling the story over and over and over again? A couple of reasons. Because it's true, A, and because we want this story to come alive in our lives, right? We want this, this significant, not just the historical facts to be memorized, but we want the meaning of the facts. We want the meaning of the history to come alive in our lives. We don't want to just retell the story. We want to experience the relationship between God and us that the story boldly says is possible. That people have had this kind of relationship in the past and we can still have it even today. We want to live this story. So here's the big idea this morning. Here's kind of my thesis statement. It's really simple, but, um, but I invite you to consider it. It's this, that worship... What we're doing here, worship can be more than a part of your life. Worship can be the pattern for your life. More than just a part of my life, I'm inviting you this morning to consider what we do together as the core pattern for the rest of your life. Okay? Um, this, in other words, can be a pattern for that. This can be a pattern for how I do my day tomorrow, at school, at work, in relationship, whatever. This morning, I'm inviting you to model your life around the worship gathering, to embrace worship not as just a part of your life, but as a pattern for your life. In other words, to live like you worship. That's the invitation, to live like you worship. Now, this is not a, a new idea. This is a really old idea. Um, I want to show you one example of why this is an old idea and uh, some support for the claim that this is an old idea. We'll look at one of the most foundational pieces of scripture. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, right at the beginning of the Bible. I'll put it up on the screen, but it's way better to see it in context. And you don't take the screen home. You take the Bible home. So we need to see it there. Um, it's hard to say that one part of the Bible is more important than another part of the Bible. But if you were to, um, if you were to be given the assignment to edit down the Bible to a smaller book that was faithful to the original, there's just no way you would include, or you, you would not include this passage. You would have to include this passage because it's, it's just so central. It's prayed every, it was prayed every day, it was instructed, given to the people by Moses to pray every day, and it's still, as I said, prayed every day by faithful Jewish folks. It's called the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that just means hear, and that's just the first word of the, of the passage. Here's how it starts. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
This sounds really simple. It's radical. It is a theological assertion of monotheism, that there's one God. This is new. This is crazy because it's not crazy. It's different because there's the God of the mountains, according to everybody else in the world, and the God of the thunder, and the God of the lightning, and the fertility God, and the war God, and the God of the river, and the God of the grapes. And then here come the Jews, and they say, actually, there's one God. God is, there's only one. So this is a theological truth that starts here, and then there's a, a connected um, command associated with the truth. In other words, that truth, if it's true, leads to this command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. If there's 700 gods, I'm going to love a little bit of that God with a little bit of my heart, and I'm going to love the God of the corn with a little bit of my heart, and the God of the grain field with a little bit of my heart, and the God of the river with a little of my soul. I'm going to serve this God with a little of my strength, and that God with a little of my strength. But if there's one God, it's all my heart, right? All my soul, all my strength. This just blows by us because a lot of us have heard it. So This is radical. This is, in, this is paradigm shifting, right? Which is why it's such an important passage. Now, listen to the words of instruction that are given. And I love this because what follows is really important. It's really interesting. It's all about how to connect this profound theological truth and a corresponding act of worship, love, with your daily life. In other words, how do we make this serve as a pattern for that? How is the worship gathering a pattern, or I should say the pattern, for the rest of your life? This is what Moses says. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home. And when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So let's just dig into this for a minute. In order for the Shema, which is the name of this prayer, or in order for the worship gathering to serve as a pattern for life, um, in order for this theological truth and then the worship based on this truth to impact the rest of your life, three things have to happen. And some, so many of you are teachers. Listen to the, to the um, pedagogical principles that are, that are right here. Listen to what needs to happen in order for us to learn to apply this to the rest of our life. Let me offer three things. First, the story of this of God's relationship with people, it needs to be communicated to the head and to the heart, right? In order, for this to, in order for this to be a pattern for that, then the story has to go past the intellectual understanding of historical facts, and it has to affect the heart. So this is Grandpa saying, let me tell you the story of Jesus who died on the cross and then rose again three days later to save the world from sin. And... Let me tell you the story of Jesus coming into my life and rescuing me, right? Now we've moved from head to the heart, and we're talking about not just um, information, but transformation, right? Tell the story to the head and to the heart. Secondly, in order for the Shema to work, in order for the worship experience to really shape the life experience, second thing, the child or the learner needs to be central to the 
the, the sharing of the story or of the, of the information. The child needs to be placed in the center of the ritual. Or maybe we should say the learner needs to be placed in the center of the ritual. It's not, I'm not saying that it's all about the kid or that it's all about you as a learner. But I'm saying that it's not just enough to say, hey, Sarah, just hang out with us and you'll figure it out. It's not enough to just to say, hey, just watch from the corner of the room while the adults or the longtime Christians just kind of do their thing and try to pick up uh, hints about how to do this as we go along. No, no, not at all. It's bringing the learner into the center of the experience so that the child can ask questions. Why do we do this? There needs to be room and space to experience the mystery and the, and, the, and the claims and the imagination and the conversation. In Jewish rituals and in Jewish feasts, the child is always given a specific role and it's to ask questions. Why do we do this? Why do we eat this kind of bread at this time in the meal? So the child and the learner has got to be the center of the experience. And then a third principle is that in order for the Shema to work, in order for the way we worship to become a pattern for the way we live, everybody needs to participate. This is, going to get, this is, going to be, this is challenging. Everybody needs to participate. Stick with me on this for a second. Imagine a Jewish family celebrating the Passover meal a couple generations after the original Passover. So this is the meal that shares and celebrates the reality that they've been freed from slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. So imagine two, three generations later, here's a Jewish family, they're celebrating the Passover. But you can just tell somewhere along the meal that there's a couple people in the family, they're just not really buying in. They're going through the motions, they're kind of talking amongst themselves, but their heart's not in it. They know, you kind of get the feeling that they kind of believe they rescued themselves from slavery. They kind of felt like it was kind of their strength and skills and assets that kind of parted the water and led them out of that miserable situation. Well, if, that's the tr if that was what was happening, it would change the effectiveness, it would change the quality of the ritual in and of itself, right? Because it would make it less believable, and therefore it would be less effective. If there is not a sense, and this just, this transcends theology, if there's not a sense that there's buy-in, then the thing about which uh, we're, we're talking seems to kind of be less compelling than it would be if everybody was in. In order for this to work well, there needs to be full participation. Let me tell you another story. Hopefully, it'll, it'll help. Modern example. For several years, I, I coached football. And in my final season of coaching, on Tuesdays, after the initial workout, before the big instructional session in practice, I, would get, I, had this, I was given the opportunity to have all the players circle around, and I'd give a seven-minute talk. It's called Tuesday Talk. And I would talk about character. It's a program we were trying to implement at the high school. So I talk about hard work, or I talk about integrity, or I talk about honesty, or I talk about respecting your fellow players, or I talk about the way you should view girls. Right? Um, and then, at the end of every talk, we would circle up and I would say, it's not about football. It's about becoming the man you were created to be. So we did this every Tuesday. And, in and so this was a long time ago. This was uh, like six, seven years ago. And uh, I ran into somebody downtown a couple of days ago with Rich. And he's like, Coach Oates, Tuesday talk. It was really kind of interesting. It was so, so encouraging to me. But here's what was hard about it for me. All the other coaches would go about 20 yards away and talk amongst themselves and joke and kid around. Not really directly, but very effectively communicating to the team that, you know what, we're not all in on this whole character development thing, right? 
Now, maybe they were, and maybe that wasn't what they meant to say, but it had that effect. Do you, you follow what I'm saying? It, that's the kind of the impact that it made. So the effectiveness of the communication was limited by the fact that not everyone was participating. It makes me think of um, a common reason that people say that they come to church. They say, well, we're coming for our kids. And I think that's good and admirable. I love that. I, if you're here for your kids, um, I, I want to applaud you. I think it's a beautiful act that you would change the tradition of your weekend to include a worship gathering because you're trying to expose your kids to the teachings of Christianity, of Christ. Here's the tough part about that, though. And I've had this conversation with even some of you here, and you've responded so well to it, really admirably. Here's the, here's the deal. If it's just for the kids, if it's just for the kids, then the power of the story is stunted from the beginning. Then the, then the, the effectiveness of this experience is short-circuited from the beginning. The power of it is just neutered from the start if it's just for the kids. If, if my dad takes me to church but doesn't really buy into the story, then what he's communicating is that I will soon grow out of this story, not into this story, right? So uh, imagine this. Imagine a dad takes his kid hunting, and then there's another dad who takes his kid to fairy tale town, okay? So the dad who takes his kid hunting expects his kid to grow into this experience. He believes this story is big enough to grow into. It's going to hold value for the kid's whole life. This is something he can do uh, for a long, long time. Now, the dad who takes his kid to fairy tale town, even though he's doing something really good and really admirable and really beautiful, he's given up time of his own to take his kid to fairy tale town. That's fantastic. I used to love fairy tale town. But that, here's the difference. That dad doesn't actually expect his kid to grow into this story. In fact, that dad expects his kid to kind of outgrow this story. It's great that he's four. He's loving fairy tale town. If he asks his dad to go back when he's 14, his dad's going to be a little concerned, right? Because he expects his kid, he literally expects his kid to outgrow this story. The dad who takes his kid hunting is saying, and I'm not even a hunter, just full disclosure, I've never even gone hunting. I'm not like, it's just, it, I know guys. that they, they So what they're saying is, this is my story, right? And I'm inviting you into this experience that I believe in. And it's got so much juice left in it that I'm still excited about it, and I'm still giving my time and my life and my energy and my resources to it. I love this, and you can grow into this. You don't outgrow this story. How is he communicating all of that? He's fully participating, right? He's just in. That's all. Does it mean he's got to be a great hunter? No. Does it mean he's got to have all the hunting answered questions? No, absolutely. You, now, let me take it back to church and spirituality. You can't really just decide to authentically embrace and believe something that you don't believe. You can't just decide to do that. And that's not what I'm advocating at all. I'm not asking anyone in here to pretend for the sake of their kids that they're more devoted to Jesus than they are. I'm not asking that. That would be insincere, and that would ultimately be damaging. But you can, as some in our community have, really, authentically, truly, sincerely explore the story of God's relationship with people right alongside your kids. 
You can ask the questions. You can take it like a kid, right? Going at that pace, exploring it, not from a place of, I buy this completely, but from a place of, I'm genuinely opening my heart to this story, like I hope you, my son or my daughter, will too. In order for the Shema, the story to work, all participants need to be personally affected. Now finally, let me just give you four examples, um, four ways that our worship could serve as a pattern for life starting tomorrow. Okay, starting tomorrow. Here's one way. There's a bunch of ways. I'm just going to name four. Uh, begin by acknowledging God. Begin by acknowledging God. The historic Christian worship gathering begins with a call to worship. That's what Amy did right when we started. She invited us in to lift up our hearts, to praise the name of Jesus. Essentially an invitation to acknowledge that God is the one who has called this meeting, this worship meeting. What's true about the worship gathering, turns out, is often true about life in general. So in other words, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you might begin by acknowledging God. And by simply recognizing the fact that it is God who has called you in to another day. You woke up because of the breath that was given as a gift from God. One of my best friends has a long time habit of making his first conscious action of every day just a simple prayer of gratitude. Like before his feet hit the floor. Thank you, Father, for life today. I acknowledge it's a gift from you. Help me to live it well today. Amen. And then he's out, right? King David does something very similar to this in Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. All of us can do this. I've gone in and out of seasons in my life where I've done this. Before your feet hit the floor, before you reach for the phone, before you turn on the news or whatever your go-to thing is in the morning, Begin, before all of the responsibilities cascade onto your shoulders, begin life, begin the day the way you begin worship, acknowledging that it is God who has called you into the day. Here's the second way you can do this. Second way worship can be a pattern for life is you can receive the word of God. I want to invite you to establish or to reestablish the habit of reading the Bible as a part of every day. Even if it's just a very short portion, just a couple of verses, Read it and sit with it and, and capture an idea and, and, and tend to carry that idea from Scripture with you throughout the day. What would it be like if sermons here at Emmaus were just my ideas mixed with cultural events and, and um, popular um, perspectives? It, they might be interesting occasionally. Mostly it would be a waste of your time to be here, right? And that's, however, that's how we go through a lot of our days, my ideas mixed with cultural events and popular opinion. <laughs> That's a waste of time. You need the word of God. I need the word of God, right? These sermons are pointless if we're not saying, this is what God says about life. And in fact, you might say that a lot of just sort of the, the train of thought in your mind has a real limited effectiveness if you haven't invited the word of God in to be a part of that equation at the beginning of the day. We need God's word, we need God's voice, we need God's truth. One of our former worship leaders, who's now a pastor in El Dorado Hills, uh, CJ, he says that one of his clearest, most powerful memories of growing up as a kid is waking up every morning, seeing his dad at the, at the kitchen table with his coffee and his open Bible. That's a powerful heritage to leave with the kid, right? Starting the day with the word, receiving the word as a consistent part of your day. 
Uh, central to Christian worship is the word of God. If you remove the word from worship, then the worship ceases to be Christian. Uh, what, if, what if your worship pattern, what if your worship experience was a pattern for the rest of your life and it involved the reading of the word? Here's a third example. Less action and more attitude. Uh, a third example of taking this worship gathering as a pattern for life is, is the invitation to embrace love over performance. Or maybe if you're familiar with uh, Christian language, to embrace grace over works. Historic Christian worship is all in response to the love of God um, expressed to people. The story that we tell in worship is a story of grace. It, it means it's not deserved that God loves you. God is not seeing you as valuable because of your good performance. He's seeing you as valuable because he loves you. His love for you is what makes you so valuable to him. And the way that we respond to the love of God is simply to accept it and then to share it with others. In our worship gatherings, we're welcomed around this table of grace. Therefore, we ought to do that just, that should be a pattern for the rest of our life. What if tables were always a place where we could just welcome people, whether it's our table at school, where everybody sits and some of the most damaging stuff happens in junior high and high school in the cafeteria around the table. And who's cool enough to sit there and who's not cool enough to sit there, right? What if we embraced our day from a perspective of love and not performance? And the office table and the kitchen table at home, the table at school, is not about performance. It's not about, it's grace. That means you haven't earned it. By definition, you haven't earned it. It's grace. And then finally, as we preached last Sunday, Christian worship ends with a benediction, ends with a blessing. It sends us out into the world in peace and to love and to serve. In other words, Christians aren't just dismissed from worship. They're sent out. When worship is more than just a part of our life, if worship is more than just a part of what you do today or part of what you do all week, but it actually is the pattern for what you do all week, then every leaving can be a sending. Every door can be a reminder as you hit the handle. I'm not just being dismissed because I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus who said, go into all the world, uh, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? So I am never just leaving. I am always being sent. So if it's a door to my office, I'm being sent there to serve. How do I know that? My worship experience serves as the pattern for my life. That's what my worship experience teaches me. If I get, if I come, you know what, I, at, the, at the back door of my house, which is into the garage, I have this tape to the door. Oh God, come to my assistance. Lord, be quick to help me. Because I need reminders. I'm not just leaving the house. I am being sent into the world to serve people. Right? And every door can be a catalyst for that. The door to the cafe the door to the store, the door into the doctor's office. I'm a Christian. I'm not just being dismissed. I'm being sent into the world. The worship gathering establishes a pattern for life for the Christian. That every departure is ascending. Now, finally, a word about tables. In a moment, we're going to gather around this altar table. Um, it's the central symbol of our worship gathering. The most important words of our worship gathering are said around that experience. The ritual of the table is the most important part of what we do together, um, at least in, if you look at hist the history of Christian worship as your guide. So my hope is that this, this pattern centering around this table could be a pattern for all of life, for all of us. 
that we could go from this altar table today to our kitchen tables this afternoon at home or to our coffee tables later in the afternoons as we gather with friends or with family or that we could go to our office tables tomorrow, our classroom tables, and we could be telling the story, right? Telling the story of a relationship between God and people, a story of love and grace and hope for the kingdom of God to come into the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of the pattern of worship we've been given from the history of the church, from so many who have gone before us. Pray for grace to authentically and openly engage in worship. Uh, I pray for a real freedom to go at our own speed, but I also pray for a real conviction to do this in a way that's genuine and authentic. I pray that this could be a place where we discover Jesus and then we share life with people in the name of Jesus and bring the kingdom of God to earth. Um, I pray for grace and strength as we consider tomorrow and the challenges and the brokenness and the responsibilities that lay ahead of us. I pray that this could inform that and that this could be connected to that and that um, all throughout the week our life would be informed by our worship, that we would live like we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's take a minute. Let's stand up together. I want to give you a chance to greet those around you. Having received the grace of God, we're invited right away to then extend the grace of God to others and to share, um, to share the love that we've been given with others. You may just say good morning to somebody, or you may use kind of the traditional language of offering peace. We're not done. We'll come back together for worship and singing and communion. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Greet one another with the peace of Christ.